you will, turn with me to Luke chapter 17. We continue in our series through the Gospel of Luke, and we'll be looking this morning at Luke 17, verses 20 through 37. Our sermon title this morning is The Kingdom of God, and our key words for our worshipers in training are Kingdom, Noah, and Life. Now, one of the wonderful things of many of walking through entire books of the Bible as a church is that we get to see the development of themes as they progress in the writing of the biblical authors. And I hope that as we've walked through Luke, you've seen some of those themes as they continually recur throughout. We saw one of them last week. We saw a continuation of people who were content to turn to Jesus because they needed something. In the case of what we saw last week, it was people in need of healing from leprosy. And so they wanted a savior in a physical sense, but only one of ten was willing to come back and to bend their knee to Jesus as Lord. They wanted Jesus to give them what they desired, but when it came time to humbly and thankfully submit to his lordship, There were very few found to be at his feet, and we'll see that theme continue throughout the Gospel of Luke. But larger than that in the Gospel of Luke is a theme that I think pretty well dominates the entire book, and that is the theme of the kingdom of God. All throughout the gospel so far, we've seen this come up in Luke's writing time and again. Jesus makes statements about the kingdom of God directly, and Luke alludes to the kingdom of God many times indirectly in how he describes the lives of the people and how they're interacting with others. There's at least 27 occurrences throughout the gospel of Luke where the kingdom of God is either referenced directly or alluded to. So I think it's very important that we understand it, that we know exactly what we're talking about. Now, we've, we've talked about the kingdom of God briefly here and there, uh, especially in contrast to the kingdom of man. We live in the kingdom of man, and yet as Christians, we are citizens of the kingdom of God. If we are true believers in Christ... But up until now, we haven't spent a lot of time unpacking that specific language. So this morning, we're going to dig into that a little bit. And before we get into the text, I think we need a little bit of a foundation here, something to hold on to because it can get a little bit confusing if we don't have a good definition. Now, for many of you, uh, some of this is going to be different from what maybe you've heard in the past. If you've grown up in church, or perhaps if you've understood the kingdom of God in light of some of the most widespread teaching of the kingdom over the last hundred years or so in American Christianity. But what I'm saying is not new. In fact, historically, it's what the church has understood for the most part over the last 2,000 years. Now, the key to understanding the kingdom of God, is having something very specific to narrow in on. So when you read about it in the Bible, that you're going to have a general idea of what's being addressed by the writers. A simple summary of the kingdom of God is something um, I found very helpful from a theologian named Graham Goldsworthy. He says this of the kingdom of God. It is God's people in God's place under God's rule. God's people in God's place, under God's rule. And if you take the time to trace the kingdom of God from the Garden of Eden all throughout the Old Testament up until the time and the life and ministry of Jesus Christ in the flesh throughout his ministry on to the time of the apostles and even up until now and on to the final eschaton, the summary works very nicely. The kingdom of God referring to God's people in God's place under God's rule. It's the redemptive reign of God, active in establishing his rule, his reign over mankind. The kingdom has already come into the person and the mission of Jesus to overcome evil, to deliver men from the power of evil, and to bring his people into his blessings and promises. And so the kingdom involves two very great and crucial moments. It's fulfillment within history as it unfolds from Jesus' coming 
until the second great moment, which is the consummation of the kingdom at the end of history. So all throughout the Bible, we see the work of God through his people, the church, in his place, namely all creation, under his rule as king to restore all things back to his great design. And God works this out covenantally from the, throughout the Bible from the beginning to the end. We see its fulfillment in one sense, and we'll talk more about this. In one sense, we see this fulfillment already in Jesus Christ. And yet, in another sense, it will not be finally consummated until the second coming of Christ. Now, some of you are hearing all this and probably are starting to sweat already, uh, thinking this is going to be a bit difficult to grapple with. But hold on, we'll try and ease up a little bit. And I want to add, and if I don't answer all of your questions this morning on some of the things that we touch on, stick with the text. That's, all. That's as far as we're going this morning, the text. We'll get on this even more when we get to chapter 21. And for some of you, I say uh, that we'll be looking in the future at more eschatology and the last things, and some of you are starting to salivate and wish we would just skip ahead to chapter 21 because that's what you love to talk about. We'll get there, I promise. We're not skipping three chapters, though. But we do have that to look forward to, and this will lead us into it. So what should be obvious to us in our reading of the Gospel of Luke is this central theme of the kingdom of God and the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you recall, the New Testament opens with the Gospel accounts of Jesus' life and ministry. And in all three of the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they, they announce the arrival of the kingdom of God in both the words of John the Baptist and of Jesus. In Matthew uh, chapter 3 and verse 2 and in Mark 1.15, John the Baptist declares, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And we saw early on in Luke what Jesus said very explicitly about the kingdom of God in relation to himself reading and explaining when he was in the synagogue in Nazareth in Isaiah 61. Remember this in Luke chapter 4 verses 16 through 21. It says this, he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And they all love to hear that, right? No, they tried to run him over the edge of a cliff. And from that time on, though, what have we seen going on in the Gospel of Luke? Jesus proclaiming good news to the poor, proclaiming liberty to the captives, recovering sight for the blind, setting at liberty those who are oppressed, and proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor. These were all evidences of the kingdom's presence, his preaching, calling people to repentance because salvation had come, his miracles, the miracles of Jesus pointed to the arrival of the great age of salvation, which dawned because Jesus had arrived. And think about it, if Jesus could heal the blind and make them to see, he can give believers new eyes of faith. If Jesus could make the lame to walk, He can show sinners the way of faith and repentance. If Jesus could cure leprosy, like we saw last week, he can remove the guilt and the stain of sin. If Jesus could give hearing to the deaf, he can grant understanding into the mysteries of the gospel. And if Jesus could raise the dead, he can give new spiritual life. And all of this is very exciting. This is great news. 
The king visits his people, and he comes to them with vast benefits, namely the long-awaited salvation. And when the Gospels open with this glorious declaration that the kingdom of God was at hand, this meant that God had come to his people to bring them to salvation. This was the way the Gospel writers portrayed Jesus' messianic mission from the very outset. He had come as the king to bring the kingdom. Now, again, before we press into the text, we have to remember one other thing, and that is the context, the cultural backdrop in Israel and what exactly they were expecting. There was certainly no definitive consensus about exactly what the Messiah would do when he came. But there were several expectations that were nearly unanimous. And we can find those even among Jesus' disciples. We see in several of the questions that they were asking Jesus along the way. First, the Jews assumed that when the Messiah appeared, he would bring salvation and blessing to his people and judgment on all of the wicked nations that had oppressed Israel. Secondly, God they believed would return this long-promised messianic king to David's royal throne in fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. Thirdly, the Messiah, they believed, would liberate the entire region of Palestine from Gentile oppressors. Specifically, they were looking at the Romans. So when Jesus and John the Baptist made the claim that the kingdom of God was at hand, This was the filter through which they all heard that. You see, their expectation was a secularized, politicized kingdom, a physical kingdom. But Jesus spoke of a very different kingdom, a kingdom where God would bring deliverance from humanity's true enemy, which was the guilt and power of sin. And in the end... Because Jesus did not offer the economic, political, nationalistic kingdom that so many of the Israelites had longed for and assumed was coming, they killed him. Remember what was inscribed above him on the cross? Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. That was the accusation. That's what he was being killed for, for claiming to be the King of the Jews. They were mocking him. You see, they wanted a Savior, but they didn't want the kind of Savior that Jesus was. They wanted a Messiah, not the true Messiah. They wanted a king, but not the king of kings. So this backdrop, let's look at our text this morning in the words of Jesus, beginning in Luke 17 and verse 20. Being asked by the Pharisees, When the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Now it's quite obvious here what the Pharisees were assuming about the kingdom of God the very thing that we were just talking about. They assumed, hey, if Jesus is who he says he is, he will tell us when this whole thing will begin to take off, when we will dominate the Romans, establish our superiority as a nation, and as these religious rulers that we are, we will have a place of prominence and power. They knew what the prophets had written. They saw that Jesus had clearly connected himself and his ministry to this particular aspect of prophetic revelation. So it seemed clear in their minds that if Jesus was the Messiah, that the kingdom of God was going to come in a visible, physical, political reality that they would be able to identify. And so Jesus throws them a curveball. He says the kingdom of God is not coming in ways you can see. You won't be able to identify it physically. You won't see it as a political kingdom. The kingdom of God does not come with observable signs. And then he goes on to say, by the way, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Notice he doesn't say, you are all in the kingdom of God. 
Most assuredly, many of the Pharisees never found their way into the kingdom of God, but it was still, nonetheless, in their midst. Your translation might say the kingdom of God is within you. The sense here is exactly what the ESV says. The kingdom is in your midst. He wouldn't be telling unbelieving Pharisees that the kingdom of God was within them. Remember also when Pilate asked our Lord about the nature of his kingdom. Jesus said this in John 18. My kingdom is not of this world, but now my kingdom is from another place. So here's a major point that we need to understand about the kingdom of God. It's a spiritual kingdom completely unlike the nationalistic kingdom which Israel expected and is still waiting on today. So let me be clear. The kingdom of God is not about a plot of land, a physical temple, or a secular nation state and its progress in politics and economics and culture. The kingdom of God has no army, has no flag, and has no boundaries. The kingdom of God, Jesus says, has already come in him. And let me say something that may even seem very radical to you. The church has no responsibility in terms of protection toward the nation-state of Israel as it stands today. The kingdom of God is not to be reserved for a plot of land in the Middle East. It is a spiritual kingdom. It has arrived in Jesus and will be fulfilled at his second coming. Every kingdom has a king. And the two are inseparable. Jesus is the king of the kingdom. And wherever the king goes, the kingdom goes with him. But we will see it is not yet entirely fulfilled. So the kingdom of God is inaugurated by Christ's earthly ministry. We've seen that time and again. He's mentioned that several times throughout the Gospel of Luke. We saw that back in chapter 16 and verse 16. It will continue then to flourish until he returns in glory. Jesus repeatedly spoke of the kingdom as a present, already reality, but also as something not yet present, belonging in the future. In other words, the kingdom is coming, but it has already come in Jesus. We call this the already and the not yet. Heaven the age to come, has broken into history in the present age in Jesus Christ. The kingdom has been inaugurated, but has not yet been consummated. That will be when, according to Revelation 11, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. In other words, the enemies of God will fully and finally be his footstool, and the kingdom of the world will be no more. Now, real quick, I want to provide some more insight into the kingdom of God before we press on. There are several truths about the kingdom that will be very helpful for us moving forward. First, the kingdom of God was declared with signs and wonders. We already saw this when we considered Luke 4 and Jesus' proclamation that he was fulfilling Isaiah 61 by preaching and miracles. But look also at Luke 11, 20. If you recall, Jesus was casting out a demon from a mute man, and people were accusing Jesus of doing that by the power of the devil. They said, you're doing this by the power of Beelzebul. But Jesus responds, If it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. You see, Jesus expressed his rule as the king of the kingdom by ruling over invisible evil forces, namely the devil and his minions, instead of what the Jews were expecting of the Messiah, which was to defeat the visible physical forces of Rome. 
So there were many signs and wonders that were accompanying the coming of the kingdom in Jesus. The prophecy of Isaiah 9-2 was being fulfilled in their midst. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Secondly, the kingdom of God is growing. It is expanding. Remember Luke 13, 18 and 19, Jesus says, What is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made their nests in its branches. The kingdom of God is, is flourishing and expanding, and we are in that expanding kingdom as it grows as children of God. Just think of what we saw in the book of Acts. In one day, the church added 5,000 new disciples. And then on another day, 3,000 more disciples. That's incredible. Imagine what it would be like if in in two days, Rinkin grew by 8,000 new Christians. So you see, the kingdom has expanded greatly and continues to do so even today all across the world. But the final reality of the kingdom comes when the great enemy, death, is destroyed in the death of death by the death of Christ. So there are promises being fulfilled right now, but the kingdom continues to grow until the final consummation. Thirdly, the kingdom of God is pervasive in every aspect of its existence. Again, Luke 13, Jesus says, To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. You see, the kingdom permeates everything, everywhere it goes. So everywhere the gospel is proclaimed, the kingdom of God is permeating. It's not isolated, it's not contained, but once it gets into the mix, it spreads and it cannot be stopped. Time and time again, men have tried to silence the gospel. They have tried to destroy God's kingdom. But it's not possible. It continues to permeate even the most rigidly opposed societies on the earth, places like China and North Korea. Did you know that in those places alone, there are more Christians today than all of the Western world combined? And it's illegal to be a Christian there. Why? Because the kingdom of God is pervasive. It's like a little bit of leaven. Once it lands, it continues to grow, and it cannot be stopped. The hand of God cannot be restrained. Fourthly, the kingdom of God brings not just mercy, but it also brings judgment. And that's really what Jesus addresses in the remaining verses. So having answered the Pharisees, Jesus turns to his disciples to speak of this issue of judgment, beginning in verse 22. He said to the disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there, or look here, do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. In verse 22, Jesus is essentially telling the disciples there will come a time in the future when they would wish to turn back to the good old days when Jesus was there with them. In other words, what's implied is that they will face difficulty, they will face trials and persecution, and they are going to be, want to be back at a time when they were residing with Jesus, when they were living under his teaching day by day, watching him do great works. But the reality is that they were yet to see better days. 
as the Lord works through them to expand the kingdom of God to the uttermost parts of the world by the power of the Holy Spirit and the authority granted to Jesus Christ. And along the way, Jesus tells them there will be deceivers, there will be false teachers who seek to point them to the kingdom. Look there, look here, here it is. But what does Jesus tell them? He says, don't be deceived. Don't go out or follow them. You see, many people spend a lot of time looking at local events and their newspapers trying to determine the ultimate end fulfillment of the kingdom of God. There are entire so-called ministries dedicated to that very thing. We see it all the time. We saw it most recently a few years ago. Harold Camping, who just died this last week. Remember, he predicted three different times that the kingdom of God was going to be finally consummated. Our sitting here right now is a testimony to that falsehood. And we will continue to see that time and time again. Jesus says the kingdom coming in full consummation will not be something we can determine as it comes. But when it does come, it will be a global event. It will be a global, instantaneous event, and it will reach all across the world like an electric storm illumines the entire landscape. Now, some of you who are not as privileged as I to have grown up in the West don't know exactly what that looks like. But if you're in the desert lands of the country, when lightning fills the sky, it goes from one end to the other. It's an amazing sight to see. It's incredible. And Jesus uses this as an illustration to say the coming of Jesus will go from one end of the earth to the other, and it will come in a flash. It will illumine the entire landscape. It won't be possible for the return of Jesus to go unnoticed. Having lived in Georgia for 11 years, I know what it's like when a bolt of lightning strikes very close. It rattles you a bit. It cannot go unnoticed. Revelation 1.7 says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. But before that day comes, Jesus must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation, he says in verse 25. Before the kingdom can come in fullness, the king must die. And with statements like that, if we're honest, we can see in many ways why everyone struggled to see how it was that Jesus was the Messiah, particularly given their expectation. After all, who has ever heard of a king that must suffer and die in order that his kingdom would expand? But we know the reality on this side of the cross. Without the suffering and death of Jesus, there can be no kingdom of grace and glory for his disciples. Because without suffering and death, Jesus has no disciples. Christ had to die that we could receive his righteousness and have a right standing before God, lest we be justly condemned forever, paying the penalty for our own sin. Now, friends, some of you here this morning think Jesus to be a good moral teacher. You think maybe he was a wise man with a noble philosophy. But you have, him, have yet to acknowledge him as a king of a kingdom. In fact, the the Bible says that he is the king above all other kings and that his kingdom will finally and fully replace all the kingdoms of the earth. And whether you want to or not, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and that there is no other. God commands everyone everywhere throughout all of time to repent of their sin, to place their faith and their trust and their hope and their love and their joy in Jesus Christ alone, the only king. For the one who is in Christ, there's joy everlasting. But for the one who rejects the king, you are condemned already. 
You see, Jesus came to set the captives free. And all of us, apart from Christ, are captives. We are slaves to sin and death. The Apostle Paul tells us that apart from Christ, we are God's enemies, at enmity with him, opposed to all that he is and all that he has commanded us as his creation. We are enemies of the kingdom apart from Christ. God's standard is the perfect fulfillment of his holy and righteous law, and every one of us falls far short of it. However, when the king came to inaugurate his kingdom, he lived a perfect life in which he fulfilled the entirety of God's law. He died a sinner's death, the death that each of us deserves, buried for three days, raised from the grave, ascending into heaven to take his seat on his throne as the king of ages. And if you turn to Christ admitting before him, that you are a sinful, broken person in need of the abundant mercy of God to keep you from the wrath of God, in need of his overwhelming grace to make you to believe and to trust and to obey him, he will lovingly and completely apply his right standing before God to your account and has already received the penalty upon himself for your sin on the cross. Friends, turn to Jesus. Repent of your sin. Believe the gospel. Jesus is a gracious and just and righteous and holy king, and there is no other. But recognize that he is a just king, and sin must be punished. If you are in Christ, it has been punished in him, and we have not to fear. I've talked to several people in my years as a Christian who have told me that they are going to live life however they please. Right? You only live once. And hopefully, they say, they'll be able in time, at the right time, before they die, to turn to Jesus in repentance and faith. Well, that's a terribly misinformed notion as to how it all works. However, our text offers a very clear warning to those of you who think you are just going to live life as you please. And at some point, some way, somehow along the way, you're going to relent and you're going to decide that instead of a life of sin, you want now to live a life pleasing to God. Let's see what Jesus has to say about such foolish ideas, beginning in verse 26. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They will be eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. So Jesus gives us two examples here from the Old Testament. One is Noah and the other is Lot. First, he points us to Noah and he says, that day of the Lord, that final day of God's judgment, when the trumpet sounds and the sheep are separated from the goats and God judges all of mankind finally and completely, that day will come upon us like the flood came upon the people in the days of Noah. Now, what was so significant about the days of Noah when the flood came? What was special about them? Nothing at all. That's the point. It was an average, boring day. And Jesus says, on the day of the Lord, people will be building buildings and planting crops and purchasing and selling and consuming food and drink and getting married. Notice, there is not one blatantly sinful act that Jesus mentions here. So what's wrong? What's the problem? 
He says the same thing about the days of Lot. People were going about their normal, everyday activities, their lives in Sodom. And then instantly, as if out of nowhere, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. And Jesus says in verse 30, so will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. You see, here's the deal. The people during the days of Noah and the people during the days of Lot were so caught up in their daily lives that they paid no attention whatsoever to the warnings and to the evidences of God's impending judgment. And Jesus says when he returns, it will be very much the same. A complete negligence of life in light of the return of Christ. In other words, willful ignorance is not bliss. The consequences are deadly. The Apostle Paul comments on this in 1 Thessalonians 5. He says, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, There is peace and security. Then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. Have you ever paid attention to the things people say and how nations react when major tragedies strike throughout the world? What happens? Everyone's in instant shock, right? A lot of you can probably, not all of you, a lot of you can probably remember back to 9-11. What were you doing that day? What was going on? Everybody was going on about their daily lives. Everything was just the same. And yet, as soon as we all learned about the events of that day, there was a collective state of confusion and shock and surprise. Our normal routine had been interrupted by this massively life and culture changing event that even today is affecting us. But listen, I I was in New York City just a few weeks ago. What are the people in New York City doing today, right now and every other day of the week? Rushing here and there, buying, selling, consuming food and drink because in the same way they assume that tomorrow will come. And none of these acts are sinful, of course. However, how are they being pursued? Jesus says that he will come at a time of widespread indifference and normalcy, materialistic endeavors, when everyone is thoroughly involved in the pursuit of their earthly affairs and ambitions. His coming will occur at a time so unexpected, so unannounced that it will catch people right in the middle of their everyday routines. We have glimpses of that surprise, what it will be like on the day of the Lord. Illustrations in the Bible, pictures from our own lives of major events that have taken place. However, it will be like no other. It will be instant, it will be global. And it will be the biggest surprise that mankind has ever experienced. So when will Jesus come again to consummate his kingdom? At a time when his coming is the furthest thing from anybody's minds. So how does Jesus counsel his disciples? Look at verse 31. On that day... Let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. Jesus tells his disciples in verse 32, remember Lot's wife. What happened to Lot's wife? Remember as she and Lot were escaping the destruction of Sodom? As fire and sulfur rained down from heaven, destroying the entire city and all that was in it, 
She turned and looked back and was turned into a pillar of salt. This has nothing to do with my sermon, but as I was reading, I was reading Josephus, an early historian, and he claims that he saw the pillar of salt. That was Lot's wife. I thought that was interesting. So you can't believe everything you read. Anyway, if it was mere curiosity for Lot's wife, as she turned around and looked, that would be one thing. I mean, we, we get stuck in hours of traffic bumper to bumper because someone ran into someone else and everyone has to look, right? It, curiosity is not the issue here. Lot's wife turned to look back to Sodom with longing. She had a love for her days in Sodom. It's like the Israel, Israelites in the desert. They continued to look back to Egypt with longing. It's the very same thing Jesus has just told his disciples. You are going to look back to these days with longing. But you see, Lot's wife, she had great days in Sodom. In her mind, her husband was an important man. She was wealthy. They had a nice house. And now going out into the desert to live was not all that appealing to her. So she looked back with longing and with sorrow and was turned into a pillar of salt. Now, Sodom was wicked, and it was destroyed in every way. But she would have been content to continue to live there up until its final. Now, hopefully you can draw the parallel here. Are you constantly looking to this world with longing? Does the idea of the return of Jesus or the end of this life in death frighten you and make you long to cling to all that this world has and all that you've accumulated? Brothers and sisters, we live in a fallen, evil place that is evil and destructive in every way, just like Sodom. However, How much of our lives are consumed by all that this world is and all that it calls us to? What are we living for? What do we value the most? Your life proves what's true in the things that you do and the things that you don't do. What are you doing? What are you not doing? Are you seeking to preserve your life at all costs in this world? Jesus tells you in verse 33, you will lose it. Are you content to see the return of the Lord? Are you content to die in Christ? Then life truly is gained. Now Jesus ends this passage here with a few verses that are very controversial, but they ought not to be. Let's read them first, beginning in verse 34. I tell you, in that night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, where, Lord? He said to them, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Now, one of the important elements here is to notice the relationship between these these people that are mentioned, these couples of people. What's clear is that they are in close relationship with one another. Husbands and wives, I think, can be assumed by that first one. Friends, co-workers. And Jesus says of each pair, one will be taken and the other will be left. What does that mean? Well, there are many who will adamantly declare that this means that people will be taken up. They will be raptured out of the earth and all the others will be left behind. An entire series of books has been written based on that very idea. But that's not what the text says, is it? Others will argue, well, Jesus mentions corpses and vultures in verse 37. So the issue is that someone will be taken to death and others will still be alive. Contextually, that may work a little bit better, but it still misses the point entirely. That's still not what the text is getting at. 
The point certainly is that one is going to heaven and the other is going to hell. But Jesus is not making a case for which one is which, is he? The point is that there is separation. Here's where the importance of this, these relationships come in. You see, we have two individuals who are very close in this life. Through marriage, through their friendship, through their common interests, their job, their hobby, whatever. But there is a separation that comes in the second coming of the Lord. One's taken and one's left. We don't know which is which, but what we know is that one is with the Lord and the other is not. Let's use another illustration of Jesus. One is a sheep and one is a goat. One is going to heaven, the other is consigned to hell. So I think this passage is only controversial because the wrong questions are being asked. People are trying to cram a theological idea into the text that doesn't belong there. It's just not there unless you force it. The idea is separation. It doesn't matter how close our personal earthly ties are in this life. What matters is whether or not we have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Because when his kingdom comes in its fullness, when it comes to be finally consummated, you are either in or you're out. You are either a part of the kingdom or you are not. And to build on Jesus' own illustration of Noah, as the floodwaters came, the door was shut and no one else would enter. Noah, his family, the animals were in the ark. As soon as the waters came, there was no more opportunity. The day had come. Very much the same way as the day of the Lord comes, there will be complete total, final separation. There will be no more opportunity for repentance. So the question is, are you prepared for the Lord's return? In this prophetic section, Jesus has given the now and the not yet of his kingdom, the already and not yet. The truth is, though Jesus has been gone for over 2,000 years, the kingdom of God is among us. If we've trusted him, if we are in Christ, we are his people, living in his place, living under his rule. We are children of the kingdom of God. And Jesus, through his life, through his death, through his resurrection, have won for us all the riches of his glory. We have perfect acceptance with God in Jesus Christ. And even more, there is nothing that we will possess in glory that we do not have, at least in part now, in Jesus Christ. So the Christian lives in this tension Living now by faith in the already and yet not fully knowing yet the reality of the kingdom by sight. But we each have great assurance about the not yet because of the now in Jesus Christ. If we are his people, if we are in his place under his rule, we will look beyond the regular living of life. And we will look to him. We will hold loosely to the things of this world and cling tightly to Jesus and him alone. Jesus Christ is everything. He's the maker and goal of all creation. He's the source and goal of all redemption. He is the heir of all things. He is the focus of all of God's word. And he is our person, our place, and our rule. Christ is the king And we look to him for his kingdom. He is our destiny. And he gives it all to us as his people. Let's pray together. Father, may our hearts rejoice. May we rejoice in knowing that Jesus Christ is king. Lord, in this life, we admit that we are prone to be discouraged by circumstances. As we look at the world around us, we decry the utter immorality that we see. 
And Lord, oftentimes it's not only because we know that it dishonors you. But Father, so often our lives are so wrapped up in this world that we begin to fret. We forget that Jesus is king. No president, no congress, no world ruler, but Jesus alone. And so, Father, as we as your people are living within the kingdom of man, we pray, God, that you help us to be faithful citizens of the kingdom of God. We are here. You have put us here. Jesus himself prayed for us that you not take us away, but that you help us along the way. You give us the help that we need, the strength, the courage, the conviction. And it all comes by the continual renewing of our mind, seeking our final and lasting joy in Christ and holding loosely to the things of this world, going through the circumstances of this life without grumbling and complaining, but recognizing that you are working them together to bring yourself glory and to deliver to your people the greatest good. And so, Father, I pray that as we think even more today about your kingdom, that we would be faithful, faithful servants of the king. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for calling us to obedience and by the Holy Spirit giving us the ability to obey. And Lord, we recognize that it is for your glory, but also that you have called us to this obedience for our own good. It is for our benefit. And so we pray by your grace and for your glory that we would walk as a people who love Christ as King, honor him as Lord, and live for his renown. Thank you, Lord, for your word. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.